As an OD business owner, there are times in your career when you have to make life-changing business decisions. In this podcast series, I'll talk to ODs and business owners who have insight into how things really work, which can help you rethink your assumptions before making those major decisions to avoid expensive mistakes while optimizing their outcomes. This is the Think Again podcast from iThrive by GPM. I'm Scott Jens, your host, and today's episode is titled Being Serious About Innovation with Dr. Mila Brujic as our guest. Mila is a partner in a very progressive Ohio multi-location, multi-doctor eye care practice, and is a frequent lecturer and industry advisor, who also has a student-focused consultancy called Optometric Insights. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Brujic. Thanks for having me, Scott. Really appreciate being here. I love to talk to you. Hey, Tell us briefly what Optometric Insights does. Yeah. So um, when I started in Ohio back in 2002, um, really my senior partners had a heavy role in mentorship. So they really kind of helped guide and shape how I view practice and private practice. And I had the opportunity early on in my career to start communicating with students. So we, we literally built a company around this because both Dr. Kading and I, who are really the co-founders of Optometric Insights, we realized... We wanted to create something that was larger than just the two of us. We wanted to create a resource center through our website, through our podcast, through our social presence. And we really wanted to create something where they could refer and reference to so that they could leave optometry school better than we were when we were leaving it with more direction, with better direction, with better tools and and ideally better equipped to kind of handle the, the new platform that optometry is today. Uh, fantastic. Thanks for investing in the new generations of optometrists. We're going to talk today about this innovation topic, and I guess you'd agree that there isn't a single colleague of ours that is doing their business that doesn't think they're innovative. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure you would say we need to be more innovative. So let's start with that. What should today's OD be thinking about the in the definition of the word innovative? Yep. So I think in the basis of that, Scott, you really need to think about change um, and really need to think about small minute changes consistently done over time lead to massive changes you know sometimes um, we take a step back and we go into a ce course on whatever the topic might be and it might be something that you're not necessarily as as up to speed on as you you were hoping you would be you sit back and you you almost kind of become paralyzed from all of the information say well that's not really an area that i want to get into if you slowly start making very defined changes over time, you realize you're at a level where you can successfully manage these patients with the innovation that's available today. Um, dry eye is a perfect example. I get asked this question all the time. How do I build a dry eye practice? And, and I think this kind of comes from the, the, the commercials, the stuff that we see on TV where this is the secret to do X, Y, Z. Well, you know as well as I do, there's, there's no secret. And there's not one thing that's going to make you a dry eye center. It's a philosophical approach that said, I'm going to do better at identifying these individuals and treating them. And as you start doing that, you see very quickly where the gaps are early in the disease, in that moderate phase disease, and that severe phase disease. And that's where you start evolving your clinical practice. And that's where innovation is so critically important. That's where you start seeing where the gaps are in patient care. And you start saying, I remember hearing about this, or I know about this. And you start plugging those things into it. I mean, when you look at dry disease right now from a diagnostic and a therapeutic perspective, it's busy, Scott. It's a busy space. 
things like lysamine green fluorescein dye in a slit lamp is the starting point. And that's where you'll say, maybe I do need that mybographer. Maybe I do need a meibomine gland evaluator. Maybe I do need some type of advanced technology to treat meibomine gland dysfunction. So it all starts with subtle little changes that are consistently made over time and never being happy with where you are in clinical practice. I will admit that that's a slightly surprising answer and it's really refreshing. The idea that you take change in small steps, because I suspect that whether it's in dry eye, as you brought up, or any other area of clinical practice, we all think about a big bang of change, right? And, and, mm -hmm. and, and that's my innovation, mm -hmm. uh, but it's different. I, I didn't realize till today, not being in practice much anymore, that the drug that is in the Chantix arm patch is the drug that is in a nasal spray for dry eye management, right? And you have to stay on the cutting edge of those things in order to make change over time, small steps, small innovations. Thank you. Um, yeah. And Scott, just to give you an example of that. So, so that that's kind of scary for some patients putting something in their nose, but those individuals that have a tougher time placing a drop in their eyes, it's a godsend. So right. again, there's always these spaces, always these places for this technology and, and it, and it's helping people. Oh man, I love it. I'd like to talk about the opportunities for innovation related to the benefit of the patient. What does that look like? Uh, you know, sometimes it's us feeling like we're innovative, but the patient has to perceive innovation, change. What does that look like in your recommendations to our listeners? Yeah, so I'll give you the perfect example, Scott, and I'll give you I'll give you two very specific ones. Okay. Although I I take care of the whole eye, a lot of my time has become increasingly. Um, Availed to advanced anterior segment disease and uh, specialty contact lenses. We started a list six to eight months ago about patients who were interested in drops to treat presbyopia. Why? Because we wanted to be the first innovative practice in the region or in the area to be offering it. And as soon as it came, became available um, in pharmacies, we were one of the first to actually start utilizing it. And now we have massive experience with it. I'll give you one other example too, Scott, where it's it's, it's a little just functional shift in the way we think of things, but it totally transitions the patient's experience. Um, specialty lenses have advanced tremendously over the last decade. And oftentimes these individuals that are just kind of good enough with their vision, and, and we all have them in our practice, we kind of walk into the exam room knowing that we have to kind of determine if things haven't gotten worse and that maybe is good enough for us and not thinking, what are the tools that we can use to make this patient better? I still remember 16 years ago, the first scleral lens I fit on a patient's eye. Now this was, we cut our teeth with some of these early designs and we were involved with a lot of these laboratories on suggesting and making recommendations on, I think this needs to be part of the standard fit set as opposed to this, this kind of design in the periphery. And I remember she started crying and I didn't have any experience with it at the time. I said, does, does it hurt? She said, no, I can't believe how well I can see with the diagnostic lens. So we become a practice that's kind of been regionally now known for these specialty lens designs. And every single candidate, we sit back and we say, here's what your options are. And here's what you need to know about this lens design. And some people decide say, you know, I'd prefer not to have that. Other people say, yeah, I want to, I want to do that. Regardless of what the patient's decision is, they know that there's a gap in the care that they've been provided and we're filling that gap with a solution. And this is what we have right now. What I always tell patients to after we leave. So the encounter in particular, when we haven't hit, like, you know, you know, the patients that like 
you hit it out of the park and they have absolutely zero concerns. And you know those patients where you've done all you can and, and you're at a, at a threshold, at a ceiling. We tell them, as soon as something better comes along or something that I think will benefit you comes along, you will be the first person that I call. And we have lists of different patient types and different patient categories. And through, again, networking like this, through, through discussions at conferences, we come up with these sometimes non-obvious solutions for these patients. And sometimes they actually lead to true new innovation with the technologies that we're able to offer these patients. Well, so a challenge to being innovative is that some patients don't get some of these advanced services um, covered, whether it's by their healthcare plan, managed vision care plans. And I got to guess that there are some doctors reluctantly sitting back hearing this going, <laughs> I'd love to make those changes, but people aren't going to pay for it. What's your advice to our colleagues who maybe have sat back and, and let that influence their willingness to adopt these new technologies and services? Scott, that, that is right there, probably with one of the most important philosophical questions we have to answer as a professional community. I just, I just, before we got on this recording, just had the same conversation with one of my pre-optometry students. She asked me, Dr. B., how do, you, how do you pick the contact lens that you're going to fit a patient with? And I told her, I said, I walk into our contact lens room and I, ah, uh, let the contact lenses speak to me. No, I don't do that. But I tell every patient at every single encounter, I say, if, if everything was free, if nothing cost any money, here's the treatment path that I think would be best for you. And this is why I think it would be best. Now, here are some other alternatives. And here's what the cost of each of these treatments are. The patient will then ask me questions about the pros and cons of each of those options and really what they cost. They, I, I think it's our due justice or diligence to, to make them aware of that. And then we can, as a team, determine, okay, this is the best path moving forward. Sometimes it's not the most expensive treatment or the one that the insurance plan doesn't cover. Sometimes it's a, well, let's try this. Let's see how it works. And if it doesn't, we know we have this in our back pocket. Sometimes it's the best option right off the bat. But ultimately, if we're not offering that, Scott, somebody else is somewhere else. And I think it's an injustice, regardless of what the cost is for us not to communicate that with patients. So I think that's more of a perceived barrier from our perspective, and I think we need to make sure that we're communicating those options so that people know they're available and avail ourselves to the training that's required to utilize those technologies in the appropriate way as well, too. Well, one more area to think about with some seriousness is that you've brought up that innovations related to change mentality, but mm -hmm. there is that technology piece, the, the, the pieces, the equipment, the devices, um, and there's so many to consider that it does become noisy. But what are the key considerations you might advise listeners in thinking about how to make the decision on which device is the right one to adopt to be innovative? Yep. So whenever you, I, I love this question, whenever you're looking at technology, there's three things I ask myself and, and I'm going to cut it down to bare bones and then I'm going to get into more specifics. Great. What is, what does it do? What does it actually measure? Every single piece of diagnostic equipment that we have measures something. What does it measure? If it's something that's not going to change my clinical decision-making process, think heavily before investing in something like that. If it's something where you see it influencing how you take care of that patient, that's something that you put more weight in. The next question I ask myself is, 
How is it going to change what I do for my patient? Is it truly going to be in some way um, alter the pathway? And the third thing is, how am I going to make it work in my practice? What does that actually look like? Is this something that requires certain diagnoses to support its um, uh, submission to medical insurers? Is this something that is we know is not covered by the medical insurers and requires a certain diagnoses to treat? Um, Scott, I'll give you a perfect example. We recently upgraded all of our camera systems in our offices, and it's, ama- it's amazing. It's amazing. You let 10 years go by, and we didn't think our, our technology was that old. But when you look at now what what we can look at, and there's a function called flicker function where you can take a picture from any time point and compare it to any previous pictures that patient has, and it flickers those pictures back and forth. So for the MACD-Gen patient where you said, ah, they're about the same, because it's kind of like looking at two pizzas side by side, and well, they have about the same amount of pepperoni. It literally layers them back and forth and it shows them in this flicker pattern. So you can determine if there's any changes, if there's any new drusen, if there's any new pigmentary changes, because you're getting immediate feedback back and forth between these two pictures. So you need to ask yourself those questions. You need to ask yourself how the technology is going to support itself. And you also need to understand how it's going to flow into the practice. I've I've seen practitioners, good friends who have invested in these technologies and they never get used. That, that doesn't do anybody any good. That doesn't do you as the clinician any good. That doesn't do the patient any good. That The only person that, that did something good to was the sales rep that actually purchased the technology from. But you have to make sure you understand how it fits into the process. Because if it can't fit into your flow, um, it's going to be difficult to bring in. One other huge piece, and this is kind of now really interesting, is its footprint. The footprint on new technologies is changing dramatically. There are technologies that are wearable technologies right now. Patients put a a band or kind of what looks more like a VR system than diagnostics uh, equipment. And and we don't have to have any footprint for some of this technology that used to be these big boxes that held, I mean, really valuable real estate in our practices. So there's new ways that we're kind of overcoming some of these traditional hurdles or challenges with technologies. You know, we've all been burned by a piece of something that we've bought or leased and we don't use it. And what I hear you say is you've got to not just do a, a yellow legal pad pros and cons. Um, there's multitudes of factors. But I think what I, I took from what you said is that if there's a, an area of your practice that's really important to you, that's got to help bubble this up because it, it helps oh, yeah. you take care of your patients. The flicker and the, the retinal camera capabilities is just an example. It may not matter if I say, you know what? I've got pretty good retina skills, but I've also got this friend that I refer patients to and they're good at that. And I want to focus on something else. So I really appreciate you giving us that insight. So what's the last, like, okay, here you go. The last chance you have, you have the microphone, tell our friends. be innovative. Um, Yep. So one of the things that I would share with all my colleagues is we're becoming increasingly specialized. And and you you see that where 20 years ago when I graduated, you could kind of do everything. And as we become more specialized, we realize there are people that do things better than us. Perfect example, Scott. I walked into Dr. Kading's office in Seattle. His wife does vision therapy. I walked into a room. He brought me into a room, had a big screen TV, all this kind of stuff hanging from the walls. And I asked him, I said, what is this, Dave? Is this like a room where kids play to kind of like when they're waiting for their appointments? He said, no, this is Christie's vision therapy room. And I realized that that was not 
a passion of mine in optometry school and now after. I know kids need that help. So I need to know where those local resources are in my region or my area. So I know where to get those kids to when I identify them because nobody's going to do me, me teaching somebody how to do pencil push-ups is a disservice to me, my time, what I'm skilled at, and my patients as well. I would rather have them in the hands of a capable individual that has passion for vision therapy. And we have that local resource. In that same vein, Scott, they are training in ways that I do not do for vision therapy. So they, they dove into the pool with both feet. I do the same thing with advanced contact lenses and ocular surface. So in that same vein, we're getting referrals from colleagues in those regions or those areas where we spend the most time and research on. So if I was to leave my colleagues with one thing, eye care is, is just a labyrinth that has so many subspecialties. Pick what your favorite one is, start really diving into that with both feet, getting up to speed as high as you can in terms of your level of uh, education, technology, whatever you feel you need to kind of start pushing it in that manner. And then start sharing with colleagues what you do and where your passions are because your colleagues may have passions in areas that are different than you. And the future of optometry, I think, is more of an intra-professional referral. I think the days where we're referring to ophthalmology for medical cases is changing. They can't handle that load anymore. They're too busy in the surgical suites. And we're filling voids where they can't capture those voids. And it's becoming this really cool system where we're becoming much more comfortable um, really, again, referring to, to, to colleagues. And, and I love it. We, we thought of that 20 years ago, and we never thought in my career I would see that come to fruition. And, and, and we really are seeing this come to fruition. So it's really nice to see it actually happening, Scott. Dr. Mila Brzezik, thank you for your insights on innovation. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. That's it for today's Think Again podcast, brought to you by iThrive from GPN.